Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. It's the 13th of March, 2023. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network, and he's back. Paul Perot Who, has what? returned. Huh? Yeah. Hey, man. Hello. We're so glad to have you back. Oh, thank you. We, uh, we, we appreciate um, the way in which you labor, and we appreciate your partnership in this ministry, and we miss you when you're gone. Um, and uh, so we're happy that you had a vacation, and we're happy you've returned from it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good mm-hmm. to be back. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. And the psalmist is um, is praying here something that you might find unusual if you've never considered before, that sometimes when we're praying, we're reminding God of things that God does not need reminding of, but we're reminding God in part to remind ourselves. So in that spirit, let us uh, read Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. So I confess it's always been a little curious to me that it sounds like the psalmist feels it necessary to tell God how to go about being God, tell God how to go about his business, um, how to relate to the people he loves. But the psalmist knows God and knows that God's going to be God no matter what we say. So let's consider what's really going on here in this um, portion of the prayer lifted up in Psalm 25. In reminding God of God's own character, um, in reminding God of his ways of compassion, in reminding God of his unfailing love, the psalmist is reminding God that he knows God. Like, I know you. I, I know you're compassionate. I, I know your love is unfailing. I remember how you have shown your compassion and unfailing love across so many generations of my people long ago in times now long past oh god you revealed yourself as a god of compassion and unfailing love and i remember it and i'm remembering that to you now i'm reminding you that i know who you are and in asking god not to remember the rebellious sins of his own youth the psalmist is reminding god that he also knows his own sin and his reliance upon the goodness and the grace of god for the forgiveness he enjoys the ability even to enter into the presence of god and speak his mind and lift up his prayers the psalmist is reminding god that he knows and understands that He stands before the Lord, not by his own merit or in his own righteousness. The psalmist stands before the Lord by grace. 
in the light of, well, God's unfailing love, in the light of the reality of a God who shows compassion in the shadow of God's mercy. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Thank you that you don't remember the rebellious sins of my youth, but you've already washed them away. Thank you that you remember me in the light of your unfailing love. Oh God, you're so merciful. We don't need to tell God to remember. But throughout the scriptures, God does tell us to remember a number of things. So let's remind ourselves uh, here this morning of of a few of the things that God has told us to remember. Deuteronomy 6.12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 8.2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Ecclesiastes 12, 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The Psalms are full of calls to remember. Um, and then also we have uh, remembrances to remember in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. This is uh, Paul reminding us of Jesus at the Last Supper. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. John 14, 26, the promise of the Holy Spirit, um, whom the Father will send in the name of the Son in order that we would what? Remember all that Jesus had said. And then in Revelation 2, 5, Jesus saying to the church, remember the place from which you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove my lampstand from its place. And so repent. We remember so that we see God rightly and we remember so that we see ourselves rightly and it leads to repentance. So let us remember today and repent. And we only repent because we know the goodness and the mercy and the compassion, the unfailing love of a God who never changes. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Given for you. This is the cup that holds the blood of a new covenant. This is forgiveness, simple and true. This is the way. Remember the way he led you up to the top of the highest mountain. Remember the way he carried you through the deepest dark. Well, thank you again for listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. If you have not yet signed up to join us in reading the Bible together during the season of Lent. Let me encourage you to do that. Um, It continues to be available at MyFaithRadio.com. And we also want to have you sign up prior to Holy Week, because during Holy Week, we're going to send you a special lesson um, every single day. So, or a lesson for every single day. 
of Holy Week. So please go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up for the Reading the Bible Together Lent series, um, because we're going to have a very special Holy Week study that begins March the 20th, and we don't want you to miss that. We're going to walk with Jesus as he travels. Um, Well, we're going to... Holy Week doesn't start then, but that's when we're encouraging you to uh, be sure you get the Holy Week study. (laughs) Sorry. I was a little confusing. I'm so sorry. Um, We want you to join us for this study of God's Word as we travel with Jesus, Um, not only to the events of Holy Week, but all the way to the resurrection. And so we would love to have you walk with us in that. So the best way to do that is to sign up at MyFaithRadio.com for reading the Bible together during the season of Lent, um, and then that gets you the Holy Week study as well. Um, All right, last night was uh, the Oscars, the Oscars ceremony, and you say to yourself, I didn't watch it. Well, you weren't alone in not watching it. Here's what you missed, because some people might be talking today about some things that were very different about the Oscar ceremony. First of all, there was no red carpet. I mean, when you think about the Oscars, that's like those little gold statues you think of. And the other thing that you think of is a red carpet. Well, there is no longer a red carpet, or at least there wasn't a red carpet this year. This year, the carpet was nearly white. They're describing it as champagne-colored. And part of it was just simply, you know, because some generation of people thought it was time to make a change um, and that it would be, you know, that black, uh, black tuxes and and beautiful dresses would show up better on a champagne-colored carpet than a red carpet. But really the motivation was they wanted to cover the carpet and have it look like an evening event was taking place because apparently that's better for photography. No more sunshine on the red carpet at the Oscars. No, no, it's now under the cover of a canopy, and apparently the champagne carpet is better than for photography. So really, it's not about what's happening live. It's not about the carpet they're arriving on or what's happening. It's about um, how all of those pictures are then going to be pushed out via social media and repurposed. That's really what's going on. But here is what I want to say about that. I think the transition from a red carpet, something that's been blood red now for decades um, to a nearly white carpet, well, that gives Christians an opportunity. That gives Christians an opportunity to bear testimony today. Jimmy Kimmel actually uh, helped us out. He was the host of the 95th Oscars last night. He helped us out because here's what he said about the uh, change of the color of the carpet. I think that the decision to go with a champagne carpet over a red carpet shows how confident we are that no blood will be shed. Well, actually, Jimmy, um, the shed blood of Jesus is precisely what turns crimson into white. Yep, Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Attendees at last night's Oscars also wore blue ribbons, um, acknowledging the plight of Ukrainian refugees. And maybe the highlight of the Oscars, um, there were some, the the guys who made the film An Irish Goodbye, which I confess I know nothing about, they used their Oscar acceptance speech to um, have the entire audience sing Happy Birthday to the star of An Irish Goodbye, whose name is James Martin, who has Down syndrome. 
So it was one of those really wonderful life affirming pro-life moments in the midst of a culture that um, often does not celebrate uh, people who conceive babies who are discovered to have Down syndrome. So it's just one of those pro-life things not to miss. Who won, you asked? Well, everything, everywhere, all the time won seven Oscars, including Best Picture. And Brendan Fraser won Best Actor for his leading role in a movie called The Whale. Um, Not a lot of people watched the Oscars because people watch the Oscars when films they've seen are actually featured and that was uh, not in large measure what happened last night. A film lots of people are seeing and it's changing um, lives, Jesus Revolution. It's not going to win an Oscar, but probably the best film of the year. You'll see in Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, we are expecting to hear from the President of the United States sometime this morning about the um, failure of three banks. Um, Over the course of just the last few days, Uh, it started last Wednesday, but when one bank fails, it doesn't make news. When the second bank fails, and that second bank happens to be the 16th largest bank in the nation, um, closed on Friday. And then a third bank, Signature Bank, shut down on Sunday by New York bank regulators. Well, you know, one is a, yeah, one is a one-off. Two, two is concerning. Three starts looking like a trend, and that makes people really nervous. And they don't want it to, you know, people to say, oh, there's a domino effect. And so um, these are, at least two of them, uh, pretty niche in terms of of banks and banking. They are not like the bank that you bank at or the bank that I bank at. Um, So that's important to recognize the Silicon Valley Bank, 16th largest bank in the nation, um, second largest bank in American history to fail. Uh, niche in that the overwhelming majority of its depositors um, had deposits over the FDIC insured threshold of $250,000. So, you know, probably not like me and you, because I don't know about you, but I, I'm not uh, <clears throat> I'm not flirting with that. Um, uh, it, yeah, <clears throat> I'm not I'm not flirting with. Oh, gee, do I need to open another account because I'm getting dangerously close to two hundred fifty thousand dollars in my bank account? Yeah, that, that's not a problem most Americans face, or nearly anyone. And so we're talking mostly about small businesses, lots of venture capitalist uh, or venture capitalist money. Um, and so that's a unique situation. However, when we start talking about Signature Bank shut down on Sunday by New York bank regu- regulators. Um, we're start. We're talking about a much more normal bank, the bank that uh, is is also in California and was um, shut down last Wednesday. Really started what people are now pointing to as a quote unquote trend. 
is called Silvergate. And that particular bank, again, pretty niche in terms of the way it was designed. Um, it made loans to cryptocurrency companies. Yeah, <clears throat> it ceased operations last Wednesday um, and is liquidating its assets. So how is the Federal Reserve, the Treasury and the Federal uh, Depart- Federal Deposit Insurance Company, how are these three mammoth uh, agencies of the federal government responding? Well, they announced this super unusual. They announced last night in a joint statement that, quote, depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday. That's today. Uh, And in an attempt to alleviate concerns about who's going to bear the cost, those agencies collectively said, quote, no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. So they have taken very aggressive actions to um, ensure that this doesn't start a panic, that there's not a social contagion where everybody, you know, starts running to the bank to get their money out. And they want to talk about rationality and they want to talk about social contagion and they want to guard against social contagion and they want people to think reasonably about these things. And all I could think of was the scene from It's a Wonderful Life, right? People are not rational when it comes to their own money, uh, which is interesting. And so just want to encourage you today to um, acknowledge that it all belongs to the Lord. Take a deep breath. Um, Do what seems rational to you. Talk to your, you know, Talk to the people who with whom you talk about such things, um, but don't but don't panic. Right. And so the U.S. government is going to back all of the deposits and all of the depositors, regardless of how much uh, money they they had in these respective banks. So there you go. That's what's going on. Um, we will talk more about this topic on Wednesday when um when our friend Bill English comes back to join us from BibleandBusiness.com. But it is the major headline news of the day. And so I wanted to read you in on it here so that you, you know, you would know. Um, I also read a, a study over the weekend um, of a thousand consumers who were surveyed uh, because there's just a lot of people, increasing number of people complaining about customer service and and then how they're responding to that. And so when a business fails you, how do you respond? When a business fails you, when you are a customer and you feel you feel failed, like you feel as if the business has failed you, how do you respond? Well, 74% of the people that they surveyed in this customer survey who had experienced a, a product or service problem in the past, um, I should read that differently. 74% of the people surveyed have experienced a product or service problem in the past year. So just think just think for a moment. Have you as a customer, as a consumer, experienced um, a service problem of any kind in the last year from a business that you that you work with? Um, that number is is on the rise and has risen pretty dramatically just in the last handful of years. In 1976, just 32% of people answered that question in the affirmative, now 74%. Um, This is a significant increase over time. And how people then respond has also changed. We used to sort of like ask nicely for things to be um, made right and for us to be made whole. Now, apparently, 
We go online, we go on social media, and we exact revenge. Uh, and so I want to just talk briefly here that about that topic, because revenge is not the way of God, and it's not the way of the people of God. Um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's an important one um, to remember. Romans twelve nineteen. do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it's mine to avenge, says the Lord, I will repay. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because um, to this you were called so that you might, in, you might inherit a blessing. So let's be people today who are quick to forgive. That's my encouragement. Let's be people who do not let a root of bitterness or envy or rage or resentment or revenge take root in our hearts. Instead, let us be people who, having been forgiven much, forgive as well. And that doesn't mean we just allow ourselves to continuously be taken advantage of. I probably am not going to return to give my business to a business that um, treats me poorly, Um But I don't need to exact revenge against them because ultimately that's not actually good for me nor good for us as we the people. Let's take a moment to go upwards with Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. All right, take a deep breath. We're going to talk a little bit today about um, the changing landscape of this nation we call America. Uh, And we do this from time to time so that we can hold up a mirror to ourselves and see things a little bit more clearly than we might otherwise see them. We have a tendency to imagine that everybody sees everything from the same point of view that we see things. And um, sometimes we need to check in on that. Do our neighbors see things the way we see them? Are are our neighbors operating out of a shared view of the world? How many of my neighbors um, would acknowledge that they are people of faith of any kind? And how many of them would acknowledge that they are people of a particular faith, namely Christianity? Well, and what kind of Christian? Um, Because there are certainly those among us who imagine that you can't be in one particular political party or another if you're a Christian. There's no Christians over there. Well, so it's, and I mean, you know, over there, just totally based on where you happen to be standing. So it's helpful from time to time to look at religious affiliation here in the United States of America and sort of trends, which direction are those things trending? And so Daniel Bennett's going to join us next from John Brown University. And we're going to talk um, about not only, you know, like, what do we know from the 2020 census related to this, but what do we know two years later um, and then now into this third year? Um, how do our neighbors affiliate religiously and how does that affect we the people? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Dan Bennett is back. You can find him on Substack, uh, Uneasy Citizen 
Ship blog, or you can find him on Twitter at Daniel R. Ben with two N's. Daniel, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So um, you and I are both looking at this PRRI uh, Census of American Religion, Religious Affiliation Updates and Trends. I am taking note that in 1990, 72% of the nation was white and Christian. Today, that is 42%. So some of that is fewer people are Christians, but isn't it also true that fewer people are expressly, specifically, and exclusively white? Like some of this is about how how the demographics have changed, not only how the religious landscape has changed. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, we are, as a country, becoming a lot more ethnically and religious or racially, excuse me, diverse. Uh, it's it, just a few decades from now, I believe, uh, the United States is projected to be a majority minority country uh, where white Americans will still make up the biggest group of people. Uh, but white Americans will no longer be a majority of the country. There will be more non-white people than white people in the United States. And when that when we connect this back to the PRI study, we can look at a decline in what they term white Christians. So white evangelicals, white Catholics, white mainline Protestants. And those numbers have been steadily declining over the years. Um, I think it's much more helpful for us as Christians to look at to say, okay, well, you know, if I identify as a white Christian, um, you know, I might be perceiving a threat from the outside culture as, as our numbers shrink. What about non-white Christians? What about black Protestants? What about Latino Christians? What about Christians from around the world who are not white, who are coming to our country? Uh, what types of opportunities exist for us to engage, partner, and collaborate uh, in a new multi-ethnic uh, Christian environment here here at home. Yeah, and if you add together um, the percentages in this um, report of people who are white and identify as Christian, so now 42% of the U.S. population, and you add to that the 25% of people in the U.S. population who identify as Christian but also people of color— then you're back up to 67% of the population, which really doesn't seem that far off of the 1990 number of 72%. No, it doesn't at all. And that, I mean, that slight dip uh, is to be expected when you do see an increasing number of these so-called unaffiliated folks, the the so-called nuns, the the atheist agnostics, but much more than that, the nothing in particulars, right? Uh, folks who just don't have a preference either way. So, you know, we, we talk a lot in, especially in the, in the, in the media, the, the press coverage of religion, we tend to focus a lot on white evangelicals as this really important block for electoral politics. Um, but, and talk about maybe their, de- our de- say our, our declining influence in politics as a white evangelical, I can say that, um, but but goodness, the the backbone and the and the foundation of, of the United States is still overwhelmingly Christian. It just might not be the Christianity that several de- decades ago we recognize. I think that's really uh, important. And and I think so. I think it's important for us to note that 
Christianity is not declining as precipitously in the United States as some segments of the culture would have us believe. Very, very loud voices among the religiously unaffiliated. Um, and and I just think that we need to know that, note that Christians of color, um, people in the U.S. population who identify as Christian, who are black, Hispanic, Asian American, Native American, multiracial, from any other race or ethnicity, particularly immigrant populations. Um, Mm. We're talking about the people who have more babies than white Mm -hmm. Christians do. Um, And we're talking about emerging generations that, as you and I have already noted, are increasingly mixed race. And so they're not going to be counted on a survey as white and Christian. Um, And so I I just... I, I. Mm-hmm. It's always good, I think, to talk about the numbers and to look at them a little more closely than maybe the headline might uh, might lead us to. Can we talk um, about the religiously unaffiliated? Because you have noted that. Uh, because when we talk about people who are not affiliated with any form of religion or, or say they just simply have no sense of religiosity at all, um, that is the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population. But it's growing really fast among those who are affiliated with the Democrat Party. Um, that particular um, shift in religious affiliation by political party, um, I think, illustrates why we have so much challenge having worldview conversations across party lines. No, it's it's a huge challenge right now. If you could look at uh if you you know link to this study in your in, in the show notes and, and on figure yep. six of the study, thirty one percent of identified Democrats uh, claim uh, to be religiously unaffiliated. Thirty one percent. That's almost a third. Uh, and then you compare that to Republicans. Thirty uh, percent of Republicans identify as white evangelical Protestants, compared to just four percent of, of Democrats. Uh, so, yeah, it's a major divide. If we talk about polarization and division on religious and partisan political lines, that is one of the biggest dividing lines. Uh, we could talk about race. We could talk about gender to an extent. But I, religion really does uh, strike me as a key, uh, key division point uh, among the parties. And when it comes to having those conversations, uh, it's it's hard to bridge those gaps, particularly when uh, loud voices in, de- in the Democratic and Republican parties really see no reason to try to have those types of conversations across party lines. Uh, it's easier to try to rally the troops by uh, portraying your opponents as the enemy. If you're a Democrat, you're going to compare religious or compare religious Republicans and Republicans in general to fascists and authoritarians. And if you're a Republican, you're going to compare Democrats to, uh, you know, essentially secular elites uh, who want to remove God from the public square and elevate humanity to the highest point in the created and universal order. So it does make these challenges uh, pretty pronounced. That said, I think they're especially as as religious Americans, as Christian Americans, uh, we can be more creative in how we do outreach to especially to the religiously unaffiliated in our communities. Uh, Ryan Burge has a lot of good stuff on this, talking about the misperceptions of the religiously unaffiliated. Most of these folks aren't atheists, right? Most of these folks aren't atheists, not even agnostics. These are folks who just don't have an affiliation. Folks who are maybe disillusioned, cynical, just kind of falling away. 
And those evangelism strategies look very different to those people than to the atheists that you might see on YouTube or television. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, so that that's really helpful. I also maybe just want to note when um, when people of a particular party characterize people of the opposing mm. party, um, they're not necessarily wrong in terms of what they're saying, but they're saying it in the most dysphemistic way possible. And so I think that being charitable about the fact that mm. people in the opposing party are operating out of a fundamentally different worldview than you're operating is a better approach than um, than the way that some in the culture tend to um, characterize a person um, who views things differently than they do, uh, you know, as 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 an enemy, because that person's not my enemy. Uh, mm. That person is a person with a worldview. And out of that worldview, they're voting their conscience. And so what I must seek to do as a Christian is lead them to examine their conscience. Well, that's not going to happen if I'm just screaming at them um, in, you know, using the most pejorative terms possible about their position. So I just I know you agree with me on that. So I'll just say that for both of us. I would love uh, you you and I have both read a New York Times piece um, about um, one of the candidates for the Republican Party going forward into this next election cycle. And that would be the former president, Donald Trump. And he relied heavily on evangelical support the first time around. This article uh, says seeking evangelical support. Trump confronts a changed religious landscape. What has changed about the religious landscape since the president, since Trump ran for the presidency the first time around? Well, you know, having you know read the article, I thought this was going to be referencing more of the, you know, demographics that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the gist of this article is really that evangelicals really struck gold uh, from 2016, 17, up through 2020 in terms of policy achievements, particularly in the federal courts, three Supreme Court justices. uh, It was about as productive as an administration can be for a particular group of people. Now in 2022, as we're ramping up for 24 and, and the Trump campaign is starting to try to, you know, tap those connections again, uh, the article's argument is a lot of these same evangelicals are going to say, "Well, sure, we got what we wanted," and this isn't dis- this isn't disingenuous, right? This is this is po- political reality, right? We got what we wanted in the last few years. Now we can start to really ask: Is this the person we want for us again, right? Or do we want to move on in a different direction? I think a really telling quote from a potential voter in 2024 was uh, from someone who said. Essentially, you know, I want to try to go for someone who is courageous and principled. Donald Trump is uh, courageous. He is not principled. And so at the bottom or at the end of the day, this person said, yeah, I vote. You know, I'll vote for him if he's the nominee, but I'm not sure he's going to be my top choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And finding that top choice, I think, um, for for people operating out of a Christian worldview is going to be challenging. because all coming together to support a candidate um, who is courageous and principled, you know, I think that is that is always the challenge, right? Uh, maybe you might discern the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, but um, casting your vote in that direction is often um, compelled by other concerns, uh, not just the courageous, principled uh, concern yeah. that that we're lifting up here. Hey, Daniel, let's yeah. take a very brief break. When we come back, okay. um, I, 
I'd love for you to um, unpack this Pew research about how young adults um, actually want their country to engage with the world, because this looks at young adults, not just here, um, but elsewhere as well. And I think getting sort of a bigger picture of ourselves in relationship to other people is helpful as well. Could we do that? All right, that's what we're going to do next. Daniel Bennett is with us from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship Blog. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. I want to wake up. I want to restart. Put the drum beat back in my heart. I need to be revived. Bring me back to life. All right, we've done a little bit of uh, navel-gazing here uh, in terms of the United States of America. We're now going to expand the lens and look at young adults around the world. Daniel Bennett is with us unpacking some research that's in front of us today. He's a professor at John Brown University. He also uh, has a substack, the Uneasy Citizenship blog. I commend that to you. Um, Daniel, when Pew Research um, set up focus groups around the world, um, what what did they discover about how young adults are interested in having their countries engage the world? Well, you know, first of all, as a social scientist, this is uh, maybe one of the big benefits of something like focus groups. Typically, in order to kind of ascertain the the direction of the country, we'll do big surveys and get representative samples of people, uh, ask questions, et cetera. These focus groups are certainly a lot smaller, but you can kind of dig out and identify a lot more nuanced trends and attitudes towards something. Now, after you find these things, you can then apply them and and test them out through, you know, large scale uh, surveys. Uh, But this is one of the cool things about focus groups to really tap into what's what's really explaining behaviors. But generally speaking, what this study is finding is that uh, among young people on the left and the right, there is both a desire to be engaged internationally, but also a desire among some in those groups, left and right, to pull back and focus on politics here at home. And so uh, in looking at young adults in Germany and the United Kingdom and in France, we're seeing similar attitudes emerge uh, in the as we have in the United States with regards to international assistance and international um, engagement, but the rationale for both the left and the right are are very different from one another. Uh, so, you know, as we can we can think about this in tr- as Christians in terms of trying to shape our own understanding of how to be involved in the world, but also to say, well. If these people on the opposite side disagree with me, they must be from this camp. And I think this focus group shows that that's simply not the case. There's a lot of uh, passion and hesitance on both sides of the political aisle for international engagement. So as they talked with young adults around the world um, and really drilled down, uh, you guys will be interested to know that, you know, essentially they found sort of four uh, identities, four groups that emerged in all of the countries where um, where they focused, um, where they had these focus groups. So they they are calling them left leaning, internationally engaged, left leaning, domestically focused, right leaning. I can spit it out. Right leaning, domestically focused, <laughs> and right leaning, internationally engaged. And obviously the 
left-leaning, left-leaning have some uh, things in common, right-leaning, right-leaning, but internationally engaged, whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning, you have something in common. I just think that it's an interesting way of promoting dialogue and talking about um, things in maybe a new and different way. Because even when I just think about, okay, just the topic of religious liberty and religious freedom, you could just take that one topic and you can see how in each one of these conversations, that topic would be viewed and dealt with somewhat differently. Like, we don't do religious liberty particularly well at home. Why do we think we ought to be the you know, the religious liberty cop around the world. You can sort of see how left-leaning, domestically focused person um, might want us to get our own house in order on that topic before we seek to do so around the globe. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if you look at some of the the rationale for domestically focused folks in this right-leaning and left-leaning young adults, you know, left-leaning folks might focus more on saying, you know, look, we, we do need to be focusing more on people here at home. I think Ukrainians, you know, certainly deserve assistance. But when, when our country gets involved militarily, uh, things tend to get worse, uh, not only in those countries, but for us here at home. They might be referencing the, the war in Iraq, for example, as kind of this, uh, you know, pinnacle of this type of mentality. But then on the right side of things, you know, for, for focusing on domestic policies, they might even say, look, you know, we don't want to get involved overseas. This is kind of trumped up to try to maybe uh, stir up international uh, tensions. And uh, this is just going to embroil the U.S. even further in international conflicts because we have so much to do here at home. And this is kind of like the Donald Trump foreign policy approach, right? We need to put America first. And this is the right-leaning domestically focused people. But then when you get to the internationally engaged folks on the right, this gets back to maybe the Bush administration's conservative policies, like the United States is a beacon, shining city on a hill. We have to use our authority in the world uh, as a moral leader to promote values that other countries should be um, able to experience as well. So you're right. It's not just foreign policy. It's not just, say, aiding Ukraine. It's any policy issue. Is You're going to find schisms within uh, or among both the left and the right. One of the, I mean, as a Christian, Daniel, like I look at this and I'm like, okay, how do we use the word moral duty or moral obligation when, um, you know, when it comes on the left leaning side of things and we're talking really about people operating out of pure secularism? Um, That is hard for me. Like that's a, it's hard for me to um, hear the language of morality used there Mm. because I immediately want to ask like, based on what like yeah where does a moral duty or a moral obligation arise if there's literally no religiosity at all yeah and i mean this is a major i mean this kind of goes back to what we were talking about the last segment major dividing point uh between the religiously unaffiliated and religious people uh you know i think certainly if you push left-leaning folks would say well, you know, moral obligation in terms of, you know, the the brotherhood of humanity, uh, taking care of uh, people who are, um, and I know you know this, right? But taking care of people who, you know, don't have the means to take care of themselves. Um, but at the end of the day, you do have to dig down and say what's underlying that. Like, why why do why do we care so much about people just inherently as a moral responsibility? 
there has to be something driving that beyond your own senses, beyond your own own sense of right and wrong, which, by the way, is shaped by some underlying morality or underlying conviction uh, as well. So, yes, that that certainly raises a much larger and probably, you know, just as important question. It's fascinating. It's, uh, you know, worthy of our intention and consideration when anybody, particularly somebody as large as Pew Research, invests time, energy, and effort in asking these kinds of questions and producing this kind of research. And so we want to think about it. We want to um, contend with it. We want to take it to the young adults, maybe in our own community, in our own church, um, in our own uh, groups and spheres of influence and say, hey, does this resonate with you? Um, Is this issue of lacking trust in government and maybe a skepticism about whether or not the government can actually accomplish the things that you're concerned about? That that comes up in both of the left-leaning internationally engaged and the left-leaning domestically focused groups. Um, Among the right-leaning domestically focused and the right-leaning internationally engaged, um, the the real concern is about um, economics. Um, Like, right, we got a lot of economic distress at home, um, and we have a limited uh, we have limited resources ultimately. And so, is that a scarcity mentality? Is that uh, mm. the is that where Christians should find themselves? I mean, on and on and on. Lots of places where you could engage this material with young adults in your own life. Daniel, um, thank you so much for joining us as always and helping us unpack some pretty complicated headlines today. Always a pleasure, Carmen. It's just a delight. You can find Daniel Bennett at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. I subscribe on Substack. I recommend you do as well. All the links will be in the show notes today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. We uh, are bringing the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day here on Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. If you've got a headline that you've heard about or you want to hear more about or you'd like to hear me seek to apply the mind of Christ to, go ahead and text me that subject at 877-933-2484. Hey, I'd like to hear Carmen reflect on this or I'd like to know more about this. You can text me 877-933-2484 because, well... We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.